Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And as you know, it was the best of times. It was the news of times. Derek, why don't you tell us what's been going on in Iran with regards to the morality police? Uh, so there were a few stories in Western outlets on Sunday uh, to the effect that the Iranian government has closed its morality police unit, which is um, quite infamous at this point because they were, um, at least they had custody of Masa Amini back in September when she died. Uh, chances are she died because of the treatment that she suffered at the hands of the morality police, uh, which has, of course, sparked protests that are still going on, protest strikes, um, all manner of things uh, in the week since. Uh, there was a comment uh, that was run by Iranian media, uh, again, over the weekend, from Prosecutor General Mohammad Jafar Montazari, uh, in which he uh, basically, uh, in a, in a somewhat ambiguous way, first of all, he d- disavowed any connection between the morality police and the judiciary, which is the, the arm of the Iranian government for which he works. Uh, and secondly, he said, uh, something about the morality police having been shut down by the same place, uh, I'm quoting here, the same place that it had been launched from in the past. Um, People took this to mean that there is no morality police anymore, that it's been disbanded. I think that was overstated. Montazari's main point seems to have been that he had nothing to do with the morality police, which is true. The morality police is operated out of the interior ministry. Uh, It's not an arm of the judiciary. But his comment that it had been shut down, I think you can take a few different ways. Uh, The most likely interpretation is that it has been temporarily shelved uh, or it had its kind of work suspended in some way or minimized in some way. Uh, there have been claims from people in Iran and major Iranian cities that they haven't seen the morality police in a while. So that could uh, kind of line up with that. Uh, mostly I, I'm, I'm skeptical because Montazari is not a real, not a high ranking figure. He's not involved in any of the relevant parts of the Iranian government. So for him to make this statement, it's a little uh, out of character. He wouldn't be the guy to announce basically the disbanding uh, of the morality. Piece. Happened now, with the Berlin Wall, though. You know, uh, yeah, at that, I mean, at that wacky conference, he's like, oh, right, yeah, everyone could true, travel. Yeah. And the Berlin Wall <laughs> came down. If anyone wants some good down, history yeah. stuff, go that's read the fa- transcript. Yeah, that's a fascinating story. People just started taking pieces of it's it. It's wild. Check that out. Sorry, Derek. No, but, well, I mean, there, there have, since uh, these stories ran, there have been uh, kind of, dueling reports that people are seeing morality police now again out in the street or that people still aren't seeing them. I think this is probably a city by city thing. The Iranians are being careful about where they uh, roll these units out to places that are maybe more conservative that would be okay with seeing the morality police on the streets under the circumstances. Um, Sina Tusi, who's a f- actual friend of, of the show, uh, wrote a piece for foreign policy, um, kind of making the same point that this is this was a very vague statement that it, it's uh, weird to have it come from somebody like the prosecutor general rather than let's say the president or the supreme leader um and uh that it's it's probably not 
uh, doesn't mean that there's been a full shutdown of the morality police. Even even if the Iranians dissolve the morality police as currently as it currently exists, um, it, it's likely that they will just establish another institution that does the same job, which is enforcing the Islamic dress code um, under a different name, or maybe they'll go back to pre-morality police days. I mean, the morality police have only been around since 2005 uh, when enforcement of the dress code was basically ad hoc. And if you were in any number of Iranian security institutions, including the besiege, who were particularly known to be particularly violent about this, um, you could just stop a woman that didn't seem to be wearing her hijab the right way and, uh, you know, berate her or arrest her or somehow, you know, in some way enforce uh, the dress code. That, That might actually be a worse outcome for uh, Iranians than than just keeping the morality police in place. But uh, anyway, I think you know people have have probably heard these stories. I think they or seen these stories. I think they're uh, probably a bit overblown on on a number of levels. So we'll have to wait and see. But if they do shut it down, it does seem to me like a sign of weakness. What that means, medium term, who the hell knows? But uh, well, that's that's a good point, Danny, because one of the things that that the Islamic Republic or the leaders of the Islamic Republic, the the generation of people at the top are old enough to have been around during the 1979 protest. And one of the things that they took away from that is that every time the Shah made a concession or what he thought was a concession to the the opposition, it was taken as a sign of weakness. And I think they've internalized that. So that's another reason why I think it would be a little strange uh, for them to, to disband the morality police because they would probably fear that it would just reinvigorate the protest. I only make good points, Derek. Uh, so let's well, move that's, on. That's fair enough. <laughs> uh, let's move on to Xi's visit to Saudi Arabia. Uh, yes. So Xi Jinping uh, is in Saudi Arabia. He arrived on Wednesday. He's going to spend three days meeting with a variety of Arab leaders, kind of holding court. Um, the, the intention here, I think, is twofold on the part of, of China. It's to demonstrate that they are a great power, uh, that they're playing around in, in waters that for the last you know, 25, 30 years have been the sole domain of the United States. Uh, For the Saudis um, and, you know, at least the other wealthy Arab states in the Gulf, it's a chance to show the United States that they are buying new friends or making new friends, whatever, that their dependence uh, on Washington is not as great as it once was. I'm always wary about making events like this all about the United States. That can be a a, a trap, but I, I do think there's a lot going on here that's intended as a message to the U.S. And, and they, they have signed a number of agreements already uh, covering things like energy uh, collaboration, high-tech collaboration, environmental issues. So um, there are some some good business deals. We love a business deal here on American Prestige. So Almost uh, definitely. business deals going down. Um, but Derek, mostly quick question. It's, it's, it's a symbolic thing. Yes, what's China's position been on Iran? Because when I look at what Saudi's doing, I think about the Saudi-Iran actual kind of Cold War in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, I mean, the China, China and Iran have a very close relationship. China is Iran's, um, you know, I would say, with the possible exception of Russia, although right now Russia is, is certainly distracted by other things. Uh, China has been uh, Iran's chief patron uh, in the uh, you know, sort of at the sort of great power level. Um, Iran sells oil to China or smuggles oil out to sell to China. I mean, it's a violation of U.S. sanctions, but uh, it goes on. 
Uh, and, you know, China, China, she's foreign policy here is, is, is sort of a no problems with anybody uh, approach. He wants to focus on, again, business deals. He wants to focus on the economic end of things, not putting China into the position that the United States always finds itself in or always puts itself in. I shouldn't say finds itself. It's not like we uh, just happen to bumble along. Uh, but always puts itself in a picking sides of picking partners of, you know, shunning one nation and supporting another that that hasn't been his way. And it's, um, I think, working it clearly. I mean, you know, I think China's economic strength gives it a lot of leeway to do this. So the Saudis look at this relationship and say, we want to be in business with China. We want to be selling oil to China. We want to be doing all these uh, things. So we're, we're going to look the other way, basically, about uh, their relationship with Iran. But it is probably, you know, if she envisions taking more of a political role in these various parts of the world, a la what a traditional great power would do, then I, I think he's going to have a hard time maintaining that, that type of foreign policy. I'm so curious, especially when we're talking about the Saudis and how they seem to be switching their economy from an oil one to a tourist and investment one, how that's going to play in with the larger China strategy on the global scale, which to me seems kind of sclerotic. You know, they, they kind of did Belt and Road then kind of stopped. They did it with some countries and not another. It's kind of funny right. how in the West you always hear about how they're so central, centrally directed, but they, their policies have been basically um, incommensurable over the last 20 years when it comes to things like global exchanges and global development so it's just very interesting to me yeah i i, I think that's uh, I, I agree it's it's a fascinating you know it's one of the things that sort of defines or will define the the world for uh, some time to come is is how china navigates these things um i will say the the united states has been uh, customarily petulant about this visit um there was a delegation of u.s officials that went to uh Saudi Arabia a couple of weeks ago, I think, for a conference, um, who went on at some length about how you can't trust China and you shouldn't, you know, you got to be careful when you're dealing with those uh, Chinese folks. Um, what the United States seems to be doing, and this is uh, courtesy of Spencer Ackerman, another friend of the show, uh, at his newsletter, Forever Wars, the plan here from Washington seems to be trying to silo off the security relationship with uh, the Saudis and the other Gulf states uh, uh, against sort of the economic sphere. So the idea is, you know, you can do your economic deals with China, whatever. Uh, but it, when it comes to security, you know, first of all, we own you because we, we you've bought all your weapons from us. So all your platforms are dependent on U.S. maintenance, on U.S. weapons, U.S. munitions to, to you know, kind of... Uh, uh, operate them. So you're, you're stuck with us to some extent. Uh, and the other, the other thing does have to do with Iran. It's, it's, you know, the United States positions itself as, look, if you're concerned about Iran, uh, and the supplies to Israel as well as the Gulf states, um, then, you know, China's not going to help you with that. We will. We're going to support you. We're going to, you know, we don't like those nasty Iranians either. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. And uh, there have been, you know, sporadic diplomatic contacts between, the Saudis and the Iranians uh, over the last few years uh, amid the perception that the U.S. is trying to disengage from the Middle East, but uh, they haven't really gone anywhere, so it hasn't been a, uh, an issue. So let's go to the Ethiopian conflict and the developments there. Yes, Ethiopia. Uh, there have been a few things, some positive developments, actually. I know I, I hate to uh, break the, the depressing tone of the the show, but there have been a few positive developments in terms of the implementation 
uh, of the peace deal between the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front. There, for example, Makella, the capital of Tigray, has been apparently reconnected uh, to the Ethiopian power grid. There's been some substantial progress in restoring communications uh, to Makella and other parts of Tigray uh, over the past few days. These are both stipulations of the peace deal that the, the two sides signed last month. Um, the field commander for the TPLF, Tadese Warede, claimed uh, over the weekend that about 65% uh, of the TPLF's fighters have disengaged, stood down basically from their battle lines and moved to the places uh, that they're supposed to be uh, awaiting basically more or less demobilization, disarmament uh, in accordance with the, the agreement. There are still some issues. The big issue is... Uh, the final TPLF disarmament, which was supposed to be completed, envisioned in that peace treaty, was supposed to be completed as of this past Friday. So uh, they're well overdue for that at this point. Uh, the TPLF says it will not fully disarm uh, until the Ethiopian government does something about the presence of third-party military forces in the region. Eritrean forces are Still there, um, by all accounts, uh, the AP just did a piece uh, earlier this week. Uh, or no, I think it was on Friday. Sorry, it was on Friday. It wasn't earlier this week. Uh, not only are they still there, not only are they still occupying parts of Tigray, they're still carrying out um, attacks against civilians, looting homes, uh, killing people, kidnapping people. So, uh, you know, that's clearly something that's got to be dealt with, um, you know, even outside the peace deal just for uh, humanitarian reasons. Um, the other force that's still there are, are the Amhara uh, regional security forces. That could be more tricky to unwind because Amhara, as we've talked about previously, claims part of what is currently uh, demarcated as Tigray, uh, sort of a traditional, had been part of Amhara uh, decades, a few decades ago, uh, and is is traditionally kind of disputed between these two people. So getting them to leave that area uh, may be challenging. But, um, you know, again, it sounds like overall the deal is still being implemented. It's still holding on, even though there are these uh, hiccups. And, and as I said, they have missed uh, a fairly major deadline uh, for, for one key provision. Thank you, Derek. All right. Back to that old standby, unfortunately, Russia, Ukraine. Uh, yes. So there's a couple of things to talk about here um uh, there's a military bit and a uh, an economic but the economic bit uh is the uh price cap that the european union the g7 australia uh have agreed to impose they agreed on friday finally to impose a 60 dollar cap uh, on the price of russian oil uh that cap went into effect on monday it is still i think too early to say whether it's having any effect uh, how this works uh, is basically uh, the EU and the G7 uh, and Australia tell shipping companies and insurance firms that you will be sanctioned, you will be punished if you participate in any uh, seaborne Russian oil sales uh, that are priced above this $60 cap. Now, since most of the major shipping and insurance firms in the world operate in the EU or in the G7, or in the G7 member nations in some to some capacity. Uh, this is enforceable. They, they are probably going to be reluctant 
to do anything that would would draw scrutiny, draw legal scrutiny from the EU or the US uh, as a, as a, uh, you know, and so forth. Um, the goal is to cut into Russian oil revenue without cutting into it so much that the Russians just say, you know what, we're not going to sell oil anymore. We're just done, which would cause a spike in oil prices, cause shortages. Uh, the U.S. and, and uh, you know other Western nations don't want that for various reasons. Uh, so they settled on this $60 cap, which is fairly close to what Russian oil has been trading at. Uh, it's been trading around $67 to $70 per barrel. Uh, and the Russians have been selling, uh, moreover at a, at a discount in, a, in an f- effort to kind of, uh, maximize revenue because they can't, they're not selling to Europe anymore, not to most Europe, most of Europe anyway. Uh, so they've turned around and offered their oil at discounts to China, to India to get them to buy. So $60 is probably not that far off from where the Russians are selling their oil anyway. So the impact on revenue. Uh, maybe minimal. And I think, um, you know, Ukrainian officials have noted that they've been de- calling for a, a, a lower cap, something more, something closer to what the production cost is, which is about $25, $30 a barrel, I think. Um, the, but I think the West at this point, mostly they don't want to do anything. They want to be seen to be doing something to, to cut into Russian oil revenue, but they do not want to do anything. Uh, that would risk a spike in oil prices. As I say, the, the cap took effect on Monday. Uh, there have been a number of ships reportedly lining up uh, in Turkey where they're suddenly checking insurance papers very closely, uh, presumably because of the, the, the cap, um, you know, kind of waiting to get into or out of the Black Sea, which is, uh, you know, Turkey controls access between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. Um, so that's that's the only effect I've seen so far, um, but we will have to wait and see if it if it actually has an impact on uh, either Russian oil sales or Russian oil revenue or both. Uh, the other non uh, kind of off the battlefield thing to talk about uh, this just came through uh, today a little bit before we recorded. It's Thursday, December eighth. For anyone who's curious, uh, the U.S. and Russia have completed a prisoner exchange. Brittany Griner, the basketball. Uh, star who has been in Russian custody for several months after being caught with uh, cannabis products, uh, vape products, I believe, at a Russian airport, has been released. Uh, the United States, in return, has released Victor Boot, who is a Russian arms dealer, arms trafficker, fairly infamous in that. Is that, that who Lord of War circles. was based on? The movie Lord I of War? I believe so, yes. yes. That's how um, I knew it. Yes. Okay. One of, one of those, I mean, there were a couple of movies about uh, like arms dealers that came out around the same time, I think. And I, I believe he was, uh, I believe that was, that was his. Yes. Um, so, you know, that's, that's noteworthy. I don't have anything, you know, any big conclusions to draw from that, but, um, this has been something that the, the U S has been after for a while. And Brittany Griner, of course, being a, a big name, uh, it is a fairly big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Derek, do you have any sense of how American elites are are thinking about Ukraine? It's been hard for me to tell recently if there's a change in in vibe or not. Um, I I don't know. There's been I mean, there's obviously been a lot of talk about negotiating and uh, you know, I feel like um they they don't want to appear like they're forcing the Ukrainians to negotiate, but they also want to appear like there is a negotiated there could be a negotiated path out of this war i'm not so sure about that at this point because uh, uh i don't know what the compromise position would be but uh, i yeah i think 
at least rhetorically, there's been more discussion of talks or of being open to talks. There is a poll, I should say, I wasn't uh, going to mention this, but there was a poll uh, released this week from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs that found some change in how uh, Americans view the conflict. It found 48% now supports backing Ukraine for as long as it takes, um, which is down from 58% uh, who said the same thing back in July in, in the Chicago Council survey. 47% now support the U.S. kind of nudging Ukraine toward a negotiated settlement, which is up from 38%. I think a lot of this has to do with uh, a perception that the war has reached a stalemate. Uh, back in July, it may have been easier to say, oh, the Ukrainians are winning. This is good. We should uh, support them until they, they win. But now it looks like uh, uh, it may be a long slog. Uh, so the public sentiment may be shifting here, which may be driving some uh, elite behavior. I will also say that the other update, the, the military update, is uh, this week the Ukrainians apparently using drones uh, attacked three air bases well inside of Russia. Uh, this is not, I'm not talking about Crimea. I'm not talking about uh, the parts of other parts of Ukraine that the Russians uh, claim they have annexed. These are inside Russia proper, uh, some distance from Ukraine. Um, uh, three Russian service, service personnel were killed in one of the attacks. On Monday, uh, there was a second attack on Monday. Both of those were linked to uh, Russia's kind of long-range airstrike capability. One of the bases uh, housed, that was targeted, housed long-range bombers. The other housed uh, tanker aircraft that would be used to refuel in, in midair. Uh, there was a second uh, a second day of, of, well, and it was an attack like that again on Tuesday that targeted uh, an airbase uh, or an airfield in Kursk uh, Oblast. Uh, hit an oil storage tank. I don't. I haven't seen any uh, word of any casualties in that one. This is interesting. Uh, the Ukrainians don't. Uh, the U.S. was at great pains. The Biden administration was at great pains after these attacks to say we had nothing to do with this. We're not advising Ukraine to hit any targets in Russia. We didn't give them any weapons that could hit anything this far inside Russia. It's not us. Uh, it appears the the story, at least, is that the Ukrainians have refitted some old. Soviet era reconnaissance drones with warheads and they're using them as long range, uh, kind of missiles in a sense. Uh, I, I don't even think they count as loiter munitions. They're so old. They're slow. They're hard to, they're easy to detect. Um, they're not maneuverable. So you can't you know, kind of dodge anti aircraft fire. Um, uh, it, it's unclear to me. It's entirely unclear really how they've been able to pull these attacks off and the Russians, uh, with their relatively more modern, sophisticated air defenses. Uh, have not stopped them, uh, but that's uh, you know one of the many mysteries of this conflict, I suppose. Thanks, Derek. Well, let's move on to to one of the saddest pieces of news of this week, and that's the foiling <laughs> of the plot of Heinrich der Dreisenta, <laughs> the rightful heir to Kaiser Wilhelm II in Germany. So, uh, yeah, I, this is a weird story. On Wednesday, uh, the German government announced the arrest of 25 people in connection with a plot to place Heinrich uh, the 13th of voice. Heinrich um, der uh, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know what he would have been like. Emperor, king. I don't. I, yeah, I really emperor, don't know. Emperor. But it was, Wilhelm uh, was the last one, man. He's yeah, the what the hell? Emperor. I mean, like, why not Kaiser? Make him the Kaiser. He's Kaiser. Kaiser Heinrich. Um, 
so yeah, I don't know a lot about this plot, but uh, you know, it was a far right uh, conspiracy. There's some uh, kind of QAnonish far right conspiracy that's called Reichsburger. Uh, Reichsburger, active, citizens uh, of the Reich, active in Germany. That uh, the adherents basically reject contemporary the contemporary German state, the legitimacy of the contemporary German state. They harken back uh, either to the Nazis or to uh, earlier kind of imperial German, you know, kind of fantasy in terms yeah, yeah, of they are no you know, good. legitimacy. <laughs> whatever they harken back uh, to, they yeah, are no good. They are, it's not good. It's not good. Um, you know, I, I don't know how sophisticated the plot was, but they have apparently been meeting uh, for several months in this sort of shadow government construct. So uh, I don't know. It's, uh, it's an interesting story. It's kind of curious. Uh, to read, but but uh, you know how deep the the rabbit hole goes, I could not say. Uh, yeah, and it seems like they're uh, keep on arresting the German authorities, keep on arresting more people. So we'll, we'll keep you updated <laughs> with the, yeah, the the every we'll be on detail. The Rice we the should Rice do Burger a, beat. Yeah, we should we should just do like twenty episodes on the Rice Burger <laughs> trial, just like. Up, 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 uh, upload it like the Mueller she wrote podcast right right <laughs> yeah we can have like a, a live correspondent from from germany like, reporting on we the should trial. just put That'd all our good. money behind it okay well i'm glad we came up with a new business <laughs> decision all right derek why don't we end on peru and just give people a taste because we're going to have a special coming out later today for our subscribers so if you want to hear it's, it's tomorrow it's going to be tomorrow Oh, well, you're right. Later today, as this comes out, you're right. I'm Derek, sorry. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Never. Yes. Ever. I, I, I get so confused with like, recording with these me. things on one day and then they How come out on you? another day. I, I just throw my hands up. All right, everyone. Uh, so, well, yes, sorry, you're right. Derek so rudely interrupted me, but we'll have a special <laughs> later today um, with an actual expert in Peru uh, going through what happened. But Derek, why don't you just let people know uh, the, the facts? Yes. So on Thursday of last week, the Peruvian Congress voted uh, to begin impeachment proceedings against Pedro Castillo, uh, the then president of Peru. This is the third time the Congress has taken up the idea of impeachment. Um, they they obviously weren't successful the first two times. And given uh, that the vote to begin impeachment proceedings was 73 uh, in favor and you would need 87 votes to oust Castillo or oust the Peruvian, any Peruvian president uh, from office. It didn't seem, at least from the outside, like they had much chance of succeeding this time around. Uh, Castillo must have felt differently, however, because on Wednesday, um, he issued a decree announcing something he's been agitating for for some time now, uh, which is the dissolution of Congress and a move to early elections. Um he had, as far as I can tell, no legal basis for doing this. Now, the Peruvian Congress has been tremendously obstructive, obviously. He hasn't even been there for a year and a half, and they've tried to impeach him three times. This is not, uh, these are not, you know, over, I would say, legitimate things. They're ideologically motivated. But nevertheless, it, it's, you know, there are certain circumstances under which a Peruvian president can dissolve Congress, and none of those seem to uh, have obtained in this instance. So, um, this created uh, a, a flurry of, you know, kind of what's going on here, responses. Uh, there were people comparing it to uh, Alberto Fujimori's self-coup in 1992. I think that's maybe a, a, a bit unfair to Castillo. But nevertheless, it doesn't seem to have been a legitimate legal action. And the Congress then 
uh, ignored the order to dissolve, met, held its impeachment trial, uh, and 101 legislators voted to remove Castillo from office, obviously well above uh, the 87 that were required. He's since been arrested. His vice president, Dina uh, Boluarte, has become president. She is the first woman uh, to serve as Peruvian president. So I guess congratulations to her, uh, except for the, the circumstances under which she took office are a little bit erratic. I, I I think it's very fair to say that the decree and this kind of mismanaged uh, fiasco on Wednesday are part of the reason why 101 legislators, I mean, some portion of that number probably made their decision on the basis of Castillo having uh, made this attempt to do away with Congress and force an election. Um, so that's, I mean, that's where things stand now. Boluarte is president. Castillo is has been arrested. He, there's, uh, I think the Mexican government said he, uh, made a call to uh, somebody, some Mexican official, uh, saying he was going to try to get to the Mexican embassy and seek asylum. He never made it. He was arrested. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's where things stand. Uh, he hasn't. He wasn't even in office for a year and a half. I think uh, he was sandbagged to a to a great extent by a very unfriendly Congress. But that said, he didn't help things by by being a, a, a pretty erratic president, somebody who does not appear to have necessarily been ready uh, for that office. Uh, he went through, for example, five cabinets, five different prime ministers in just a few months. Um, didn't per, get, didn't put out, get, give off the, the kind of uh, impression of a stable, competent leader. So that, that didn't help. Uh, but I do think he was dealt a bad hand for what, whatever that's worth. Well, frankly, folks, I think Derek just gave too much away for free, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, everyone check out that Peru special, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.